Okay, Judges chapter 10. Tonight we continue to see a few more uh, judges here and we kind of see a little bit of a contrast in some senses where the bulk of chapter 11, pretty much the entirety of the chapter records the life, as chapter 12 will as well, of a man named Jephthah. And then in chapter 10, we just have these couple of snapshots of some judges, which we have very little information about their lives, but yet God records them in his word. Again, remember these judges were sort of like just little deliverers that God would raise up for a season that would uh, liberate God's people at times from from their enemies when they would turn away from the Lord and then provide, it seems, some stability for the people kind of on a, a military and governmental level for a time. So chapter 10 opens with uh, two different judges. Again, as I said, we don't know a whole lot about them. It tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, that after Abimelech, who we saw last time, a very ambitious and selfish individual who we learned a lot of lessons about what not to do uh, from chapter 9, but after him, it says, arose... To save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. So that was quite an interesting family there. Uh, don't know where those names are coming from, but you might want to keep those out of your son's lives if you have a few. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel, we're just told, verse 2, 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. So when we get the description of this particular judge, Tola, uh, very interesting. We're not told particularly who he saved Israel from, what the conditions were. We're not told what his exploits were, really, or any of the details of his ministry, the things that he did or his accomplishments. All we are told about him, verse 2, is that he judged or served in this place of office, his leadership, his ministry to the people, it says, for 23 years, and he died and passed off the scene. And, and in a sense, his, his claim to fame was for 23 years, he provided consistency and stability and faithfulness in his office and his service to the people. Again, doesn't seem there was a lot of glamour. Uh, we don't read of any special highlights. He doesn't get a whole lot of press. In a lot of ways, it seems there was somewhat of an obscurity to his life, to his service, to his ministry to the people of God. But yet, notice, the, the Spirit of God recognizes him. God knows what he did over those 23 years, and apparently, what he did from God's perspective, it was worthy of record in the Word of God. God's documented his faithfulness, and he's just a reminder to us of how at times, yes, there may be those who are like Gideons, there may be those who are like Samsons, but then there are also those like Atola, uh, who really we don't hear a whole lot about them. They're not among the who's who of uh, you know, God's servants, but for, for, for numbers of years, they are faithful, they're consistent, they show up, they do their job, they serve the people, they fulfill their commitments, and what they do is no less important from God's perspective. God still takes notice of what they do, and I think that's a great encouragement because sometimes it's very easy for us Perhaps if we don't feel like what we do is in the limelight or recognized or uh, we don't have maybe some of the recognition of other servants that somehow what we do is less important and the reality is it's not uh, from God's perspective. Remember, when we get to heaven, it tells us that as Jesus is doling out reward spiritually that he is going to make this statement to those who did well. He's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful 
servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And, and that's always a great encouragement. He doesn't say, well done, thou good and popular, uh, thou good and well-recognized, thou good and famous servant. He says, good and faithful servant. And you know, whatever it is that we contribute to the body of Christ, however God's called us to serve, the important thing is were we faithful in the sphere of responsibility that God gave to us, whether that was being a faithful mom who ministered to kids or a faithful grandmother who loved and served her family or whether that's someone who is a missionary on a foreign field or, or someone who is an auto mechanic or in the business world and just faithfully represents the Lord there and serves the Lord in that capacity, whatever it may be, uh, God recognizes and God knows and he has record, uh, though it may not be very obvious outward to others what we do. And this man Tola, 23 years, he provided stability, faithful service, and then passed off the scene. Verse 3 says, after him, then arose Jair, a Gileadite, and we'll see more about them in the, the verses to come. And Jair, this Gileadite, he judged Israel for 22 years. So again, someone else for over two decades who faithfully served God's people. And we read of him, verse 4, that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they also had 30 towns. So apparently these were pretty influential individuals to have donkeys and to seem perhaps occupy a town as far as leadership. Uh, this was an influential family, it seems, not only himself, but he had sons who he had perhaps raised in the Lord, and they were people of great influence as well. They were recognized among the people in that day. They had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And then Jair, it says, verse 5, died and was buried in Camun. Now, verse 6, we see this cycle that we have been seeing continue to start up again with Israel. It says, verse 6, then the children of Israel again, and that's always our word reminding us they keep going back to this pattern, this cycle that they're unable to get out of in their lives, this routine of turning back away from God even after he does so much good for them. They again, it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab and the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. So quite a variety. I mean, they, they seemed after a while, you know, and it is interesting. All those different gods are referenced that they serve. It's almost as if you begin to get the idea that they were starting to get bored. They kept having to look for new gods. And oh, what about, I wonder what the gods of Moab are like. I wonder what the gods of Sidon are like. And, you know, and the reality is this. It just to me as I read that, it says they forsook the Lord and didn't serve him. You know, whenever a person forsakes the Lord and doesn't serve the one true and living God, which is what gives fulfillment and meaning to our lives. We were created, Revelation 4 tells us, we were created for God, for God's will and God's pleasure, we exist and were created. And the, the only way to truly find fulfillment and satisfaction is to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is not to forsake the Lord, and serve other things, but to serve the Lord himself, to use our life to serve the Lord. And to the extent that we do that, we find fulfillment, we find satisfaction. To the extent that we don't do that, we will serve something else. But you see from this extensive list here in verse 6, the reality is, is that when we serve ulterior gods, then the one true and living God, foreign gods, other things, those things always leave us empty. 
So we have to keep going from this people's gods to those people's gods. And well, this is kind of, okay, I, I tried this for a while and this substance is kind of getting boring, so maybe there's something else. And so I'm going to try this pursuit and try that pursuit. And it's absolutely amazing how when someone is not willing to serve the Lord, how they'll never find satisfaction in serving anything else. They will just keep going from thing to thing to thing to thing and they'll keep chasing down the next thing, whether it's, a, again, some form of pleasure or something that they can engage in, some activity, some substance, some material possession, uh, some desire of recognition. Or, I mean, again, there's so many things that people can serve and, and like all this plethora of this list of gods here, people would just try thing after thing after thing and the reason why the bottom line is they say had forsook the Lord and they didn't serve him. And this is such a sad thing. And here God's people, again, though they know God, they have the comprehension of what it means to serve God, they turn away and forsake the Lord and no longer serve him. And of course, that brings the next step in the process when they disobey and dishonor God. Verse seven, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, that is never a good place for a nation to be in. Never is it a good thing for any nation to be in a place where the anger of the Lord is hot against a nation. But when a nation <laughs> turns away from God and serves every other God under the sun other than the one true and living God, this is the condition they put themselves in before the Lord. I mean, I can't help but to uh, you know, take note of the reality of, you know, think of our own nation. And think of all the different gods that we serve and the things we bow down to and, and how in so many ways we have forsaken the Lord and we don't want to serve him, but we want to serve everything else under the sun and we bow down and give service to so many other things like gods and bow down to the altars of all these other things. And how no doubt, I think in a lot of ways, it would not be a stretch to say that in some ways perhaps the anger of the Lord is hot against our own nation because of the things that we are doing and how we've turned away from the Lord and two other things. So this is not a good condition. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and notice what he did. He brought judgment and discipline against them to quicken them, to get their attention of the error of their ways. It says he sold them, and this is what God would often do, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So what does God do? As he promised back in the law, he took away their protection, their safety. He basically just took away their defenses and he let them become vulnerable to their enemies. And enemies that they should have conquered and enemies that they should have been able to overcome. Instead, God basically says, okay, if you don't want to serve me and you want to serve those things, then really it's almost as if God says, okay, then, then I'll just, I'll bow out then. I'll, I'll, if you want me to step out of your life, if you want to push me out of your life, I'll be a gentleman. I won't force myself upon you. So see how it goes if I pull back my hand of favor and protection and blessing from your life. And when he would do that, then he would turn them over and the hand of the Philistines would come in and rule over them harshly or the hands of the people of Ammon. So again, if you don't want God's hand on your life, God says, fine, you can have your hand on my life or you can have the hand of the enemy upon your life. Wh whose hand would you like to have upon your life? And here God allows the hand of the enemy to take over and manipulate and control their lives and cause them to be in misery. Again, trying to get their attention to come to a place of repentance was often the reason. Verse 8 says, And from that year, 
they then harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who are on the other side of the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So again, a, a cycle, 18 years of being harassed and oppressed. Again, the stubbornness of the hearts of mankind. It took them 18 years until there was a desire, a willingness to bow the knee, come to a place of repentance. They just dealt with the misery. And it isn't amazing how when, when people you know, can turn away from the Lord and the consequences and the pain and the problems come upon their life, how stubborn and sort of stiff-necked people can be that they could go that long before coming to a place of waking up, coming to their senses, kind of like the prodigal and saying, what am I doing? This is miserable. And turning to God and crying out to him. So for 18 years, this went on. Moreover, verse 9, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel, I have this circled, was severely distressed. That does not sound pleasant. Severely distressed and boy what a great reminder that you know that, that's the outcome of sin i mean that's the outcome of not serving the lord why anyone would ever think in their rational mind that somehow serving god is somehow going to yield something good when the reality is is that's what it leads to people being severely distressed severely distressed because their decisions are off, the consequences that come. I mean, what a miserable condition. Not just be distressed, but to be severely distressed. But that's what absence from the Lord brings. Verse 10, And the children of Israel, once they were severely distressed, isn't this how it works? They come to the end of themselves, as we often do as people, once we're severely distressed. But yet God uses that condition to cause us to cry out to the Lord. And what do they say? We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me? And I delivered you from their hands. So God reminds them, he says, listen, the very people who are controlling you now and harassing you and oppressing you, and for 18 years have brought you to the place where you're severely distressed, God said, God, he says, do you, did you ever stop to remember? I already delivered you from these things. You put yourself back under bondage and misery to the very things. And he says, didn't I already set you free from these things? I wanted to give you a life of freedom. Why would you go back into a life of bondage once I've given you a life of freedom? He said, I've already set you free from these things. It's not that the lack of power is on my end, God's saying. Don't ever think there's something missing on my end. I've already delivered you from so many of these enemy nations. The reason he's saying you're in that condition is because you've chosen to be in that condition. You're in that condition because of your poor choices. It had nothing to do with the error on God's end, and that's what he reminds him of. He says, verse 13, Though I delivered you from all these people, yet you have forsaken me, God says. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. That sounds scary. God says to them, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. So God's basically saying, look, if you don't want my help, then fine, I won't offer it. 
And he says, if you think that it is worthwhile to serve these other things and serve these other gods that you've chosen instead of me, then he says, why don't you give them a try? See how they help you in your time of distress. See if these other gods can cause your enemies to be overthrown and let you be set free from them. I've set you free from things. But he's saying, these other things that you're serving, are they giving you victory? Are they giving you freedom? And I think this is a good reminder because sometimes you know, people experience the victory and the power of the Lord and the power of the Spirit. It's so strong, isn't it, to set us free from things. You know, for those of us in this room, I'm certain for all of us, there were things in our life at one time that controlled us maybe. Maybe it was a habit or some condition or some substance and, or in just an attitude or bitterness or whatever. But things controlled us and the power of God set us free. And, and somehow we then come into this crazy way of thinking when we get off track where we start to think that we need to turn to other things to set us free. And God says, try those other things. Try that program. Is that program really going to help set you free the way that I set you free? Is that person or that situation or that new pursuit, is that going to give you the power, he says, to deliver you? None of those things have the power that God has to deliver us out of things. God himself is the only deliverer and the one who's got the power to do that. There is nothing more worthwhile for any of us to do than to serve the Lord and to serve him faithfully, remembering what he's done for us remembering what he can do for us. God's saying, can they help you? Can these other things help you that you've turned to? Let them deliver you, he's saying somewhat sarcastically in your time of distress. Now, they realize that this is sort of a rebuke from the Lord and repentance now begins to come. And you can see somewhat in verse 15 and 16, really a depiction of what repentance should look like. I think verse 15 and 16 kind of picture rather well really what repentance should look like. And and I stress the word look like because repentance should look like something. Uh, Remember, it tells us that John the Baptist says when he was preaching, bear forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, what John was saying is, listen, don't talk about repentance. Repentance should manifest fruit. Again, Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. An apple tree is going to produce apples. That's how you can tell what kind of tree it is by the kind of tree it, uh, fruit that the tree produces. Well, in that same manner, John was saying, listen, if this is genuine repentance, then let's see it. It'll manifest itself. There will be certain evidences of genuine repentance. And again, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to or translates into a change of action, a change of behavior. It's not just tears and I'm sorry I shouldn't have done it or I wish I didn't get caught. It's not saying I'm going to change. Repentance, it has an, a, a something that can be measured by. And this is a perfect, in some ways, I think, picture. Look at verse 15 and 16 of what things should be uh, really, uh, I guess you could say, involved or included in repentance. It says, The children of Israel said to the Lord when they were rebuked now for their sin, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. And then it says of God very beautifully, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So take notice. This is what repentance looks like. First of all, there is genuine, sincere confession without any excuses going on. Again, what do they say there in verse 15? 
we have sinned. Not, well, I mean, if, if it wasn't for this going on, then I wouldn't, and, and I wouldn't be like this if they weren't, and, and, and it's just, I'm wrong. I've sinned. What I'm doing is wrong. You know, confession, really, when you look at the term from the Greek perspective, verse you know, John 1, 9, where it says, confess your trespasses, it means literally to say the same thing. In other words, confession is just what God says is sin. We just take ownership and admit sin is sin. And we don't make excuses for it. There's no justifications. Why well, behave that way because or this or that. It's just, no, it, it just, it's wrong. I'm just wrong. And what I did is wrong. There's no excuse for it. And it's just taking complete ownership. And here, just very bluntly, we have sinned. There's just sincere confession, no excuse making for it, whatever, just taking ownership of it and acknowledging what was done, point blank, nothing else to be said about it. Secondly, notice they say, do to us whatever seems best to you, only deliver us. What is that? That, that is the idea there is just a, a submitted heart to God that says, God, we don't want to dictate what we deserve. Whatever you think is best, we submit to that. God, whatever consequences, whatever measure of mercy, however, just Lord, you do whatever seems best to us. We're wrong. We have no claim to argue about anything. Lord, what we did was wrong, so we don't have any right to dictate to you what should happen from this point forward. Lord, just do whatever seems best. Oh, just give us mercy. God, all I want is just mercy. What I did was wrong, and if you'll just give me mercy and deliver me, Lord, you do whatever seems best from this point. Whatever the consequence, whatever the measure of the consequence, whatever you want to do with me, God, I'm just broken and I'm yielded. That's a repentant heart. When a person says, I know I'm wrong, but then wants to get right away in control and start controlling how things are going to... To me, that's not brokenness. That's not genuine repentance. That's just, I want to say that I'm wrong just so I can jump through the hoop, but now I want to be back in control and steer the ship. And God says, no, no. When a person's broken and repentant, they say, I'm wrong and I'm not in charge anymore. I don't deserve to be in charge anymore. God, I just relinquish all that over to you. I'm fully submitted. God, whatever seems best to you, I trust you because you're the one I've sinned against. Just mercy, God, deliver me this day. And then verse 16, notice, repentance also will demonstrate clear actions to turn away from the prior wrongdoing. It says they put away the foreign gods and serve the Lord. Th there it is. The behavior that was wrong stopped. So when there's genuine repentance, whatever the wrong behavior was, the habit, the practice, the activity, whatever one was participating in, it stops. That's repentance. Not, I know I shouldn't be, I, yeah, I, well, I, know, I, know, yeah, I know we shouldn't be having sex right now, but, and, and, I, and I, Lord, I'm sorry, and it's going to stop. And then six days later, you have sex again. That's not repentance. Repentance is you stop. <laughs> And you don't do it anymore. Well, I know I shouldn't be drinking or getting drunk anymore. And just, but, and, 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 and you say that. But no, it's not repentance till it stops. Repentance is you put away the habit, the wrongdoing, and you cut off the opportunity. You burn the bridge. You choose to turn away from it and you serve God instead by turning away from what's wrong and turning towards what's right. Again, there's the fruit of repentance because there's a change of behavior. There's a change of action. That's genuine repentance. And when God sees that, 
when God sees a person in this condition struggling, he's so quick and so willing to be merciful and gracious. His heart is moved. Again, listen, God, God is so compassionate. Look at the end of verse 16. His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Does God like to see us miserable? Of course not. And keep in mind, gang, even when we cause our own misery, they cause their own misery. They brought this misery upon themselves, but yet God, so compassionate, it says when he saw this, he couldn't endure the misery anymore. He said, I've, I've got to step in and help them. His heart was broken to see the situation that they were in. God does not want to make you miserable, even when you fail. Please don't think, oh, I, yeah, I messed up. And boy, God, that's, he just wants to rub it in my nose now the rest of my life and make me miserable. That is a lie from the devil. And that is just condemnation from the pit of hell. People may want to make us miserable when we fail, and I wish that weren't true, but that's just the way people are. <laughs> and people will just gladly see us be in misery the rest of our lives. But that's not the heart of God. God loves repentance. God loves to forgive and to heal and to restore in his way and his time. The best thing we can do is know that's his heart. And that's why we can say, Lord, I'm done. Whatever seems best. Just get me out of this misery, Lord. I, I want to experience your best for my life once again. So verse 17, the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilgal. And the children of Israel then assembled together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, they then said to one another... Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they're ready now to be set free from this situation of oppression and being harassed by the Ammonites and so forth. And so now they put forth a call. They assembled together. It's obvious there's going to be some type of a military conflict. They're ready to throw off their enemies. And verse 18, the call goes out. Who is the man that will fight for us? Will somebody step up and lead us? You know, there's this call of leadership, this vacuum of leadership. Is anyone willing to step up and to lead us into the will of God? Who is that man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon and lead us in the ways of God? In chapter 11, verse 1, we see who God had set aside. Wasn't again the most likely individual. In fact, he was the one no one thought would do it, but Jephthah. Chapter 11 tells us of this next judge that God raises up by his spirit and uses in a powerful way. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. Again, a man of character, the idea indicates, a man of courage, a man of valor. But he was the son of a harlot. So he was a child of prostitution. He had come to conception through the interaction of a man with a prostitute. So he had you know, somewhat of a, an illegitimate birth. He was someone who uh, had, had a, 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 you know, a unfortunate kind of entry into this world whereby there was a stigma upon his life. And people always looked at him, you're the, you're, the, you're the son of a prostitute. You, know, you come from the wrong side of the tracks. And, and he had this sort of negative stigma attached to his life. And again, was this Jephthah's fault? Of course not. He didn't cho choose this entry into his world. He didn't you know, determine what his start was going to be in life. And some of us get a great start. And the reality is, is some of us just don't. Some of us don't. But that's not something that needs to inhibit us the rest of our lives. Maybe you, you know, look at your life and you've had a great start. Maybe you're one of those individuals who you didn't have the best start. Maybe you didn't get the most wonderful you know, entry to get things started. And because of that, there's some negative things attached to your childhood, your upbringing. The way Listen, that 
please hear me, does not have to prohibit you for the rest of your life. You can rise above those things. Jephthah is a perfect example of that. And he deals with a lot of difficulty in his early days. But God uses that to shape his character. And he becomes an incredible man because of what he had to overcome. So he was a son of a harlot. Look what happens. Verse 2, Gilead's wife bore sons. These would be his sort of half-brothers. And his wife's sons grew up and they drove Jephthah out. So they pushed him out of the family. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And they said to him, look, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. You're not a legitimate child. You're not a legitimate brother. And so his brothers all turned against him. They ostracized him. They pushed him out. You are a, you're the son of that harlot, that mistake that happened when dad slept with a prostitute one night. And you're not one of the legitimate family members. And he actually got ostracized from his family, driven out. And again, imagine the pain of that. The rejection. Not only rejected by his friends. I mean, that's painful enough. But rejected by his own family. I think family rejection is an extremely painful thing. And here his own family members basically turn against him. They reject him because of this stigma upon his life. No doubt that was very painful. He's pushed out of the family and cut off from the inheritance. And verse 3 says, Jephthah therefore fled from his brothers and he went and dwelt in the land of Tob over in the area of Syria in a distant land. And worthless men, it says, banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So the picture here, Jephthah ends up being pushed off into the wilderness and it says that a band of men kind of rough around the edges, they start assembling together to Jephthah and Jephthah and this band of men who rally around him, they begin to almost take on like a Robin Hood experience here where basically they are kind of hired out as mercenaries to go and to handle issues and they would go and raid villages and probably you know take what was necessary and they were probably hired out by people and, and they begin to develop this skill of kind of being like a little militia force. But again, in these days, here is Jephthah dealing with the pain of the rejection from his family, his disappointments. Why, why did I have to be born the way I was? How come I was born the son of a prostitute? That's not my fault and I have to be treated like this. And now here I am struggling out here and going through these things and having to live this existence and, 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 and functioning in this way and kind of this Robin Hood existence with a little militia group that he's leading. But in all these things, what God's doing, God's shaping character in him. God's building a depth of character in this man. And in this time, he had to depend upon the Lord in ways unlike his brothers did because he had to get by on his own. And his struggles and the difficulties and things that he went through, the disappointments and the heartache and the pain and the loneliness and the being ostracized from the family and rejected, all of that was something God used to make him live very dependently upon the Lord and also to shape and to build character in his life. And he was learning how to be a soldier. And more than that, he was learning how to be a leader as he was leading this band of men. And little did he know all of those things that were probably miserable and hard and difficult were actually things that God was using to prepare him for something that was coming down the pike. And let me just say, God is the master of using everything. Everything. Family experiences, disappointments, hard things, difficult things, misfortunes, challenges, all those things. And even everyday experiences, the times when you feel like I'm stuck in this wilderness and I'm having to do this out here. Trust me when I tell you, God is the master of using all those things for his good purposes. 
The Bible tells us he works all things according to the purposes of his will. So the things that are happening in your everyday life, your family experiences, your job, all, God's using all that and he's shaping character. And he's preparing you and he's getting you ready for the next thing that is coming down the road as the result of what you've gone through in the past and perhaps even presently. Because look what happens. Verse 4. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon then made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders, the leaders of Gilead, went to get, guess who? Jephthah. <laughs> we need somebody tough. We need somebody that's rugged and has courage and is somebody that's experienced. We need a strong leader. We don't need no wimpy guy. We need a tough dude who is brass tacks, who can handle military conflict, who's going to be a strong, courageous man, a good leader. And what do they do in their time of distress? They say, hey, remember that guy Jephthah? Everybody hires him when they need help. That guy has got some real character and some ability to fight conflict. So they now send to Jephthah and say to him, verse 6, Come, be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Isn't that interesting? So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, and you probably would too, Wait a minute, did you not hate me? And expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? So he says, wait a minute. Don't you remember? Aren't you the same people who hated me and kicked me out of town and expelled me? Now all of a sudden, just because you're in a jam and because you're in distress, now all of a sudden you want me to come back and help you? You want me to come back and save you and be your leader and deliver you from the distress? Hmm, you rejected me at one time. Now you want me to come help you and save you? Now, boy, isn't that interesting? Because to a much, 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 did I say that yet? Much, much greater degree, when else did that happen? With Jesus. Jesus came to his own and his own, what? Received him not. They rejected him. And they pushed Jesus out and said, we don't want anything to do with you. And ultimately they said, what? crucify him away with this man but yet then ultimately the one who is rejected is the same one when people are in distress to this day who they call upon who as their savior come and help us our life is my life is a mess now lord i know i rejected you my whole life and i hated you and i treated you horrible but lord i'm in great distress and my life is a mess would you come take over my life now would you come save me? Would you come help me? And, and how Jesus does that. What a fitting picture with the rejection and then the cry of, uh, of wanting Jephthah to save them of how much the same happens with us and with our Lord Jesus. He was the rejected one who ultimately became the savior and the deliverer who we look to in times of distress. So Jephthah says, now you want me to come and help you? You've come to me when you're in distress. Verse 8, the elders respond to Jephthah, this is why we've turned to you again, to you now, that you may go with us to fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home, to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord, notice again, see the dependence he has? He's learned this because of the difficulties of his life. Interestingly enough, Jephthah makes more references to the Lord than any of the other judges recorded in the book of Judges, which shows you this man had a genuine faith and relationship with the Lord because he uses the name Yahweh God in what's given of the scriptural record of him more than all the other judges. 
So he right away says, if the Lord delivers them to me, it won't be me, but God will give the deliverance. Then he says, shall I be your head? Will I truly be your leader? He wants to know. And the elders of Gilead said to him, the Lord be witness between us if we do according to or excuse me, do not do according to your words. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord in Mizpah. Chapter 11, verse 12. Now he begins his leadership role. Now Jephthah sent messengers after taking his office. He sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon saying, what do you have against me that you've come out to fight against me and my land? So here's what Jephthah is going to be doing as we see this now. Instead of automatically just engaging in conflict right away, that you know they're lined up, they're ready to attack the people of Israel, what he starts to do here is he starts the process of diplomacy. Rather than just enter into a full-out battle and warfare, he makes an effort first to seek peace. This is a peace negotiation. Before he enters into conflict and starts a full-on battle and, and war where a bunch of people get hurt and wounded, first of all, he tries to negotiate. He says, look, okay, think maybe we could talk through this first. What is it that you've come out against us? Well, what's, what's your beef, he's saying? What do you have against us? Well, what is it? And again, what a, a good picture, again, of, of good leadership here rather than just instantly try and throw around his authority instead in wisdom, in meekness, which is authority under control, he, he tries first to dialogue and to communicate rather than to just enter into attack and warfare and conflict. And again, this is the heart of the New Testament, what we are supposed to do as Christians. The Bible tells us that we are, in Hebrews it says, Hebrews 12, that we are to pursue peace with all people. That we're to pursue peace first. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. It says in Romans chapter 12, particularly, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, we should always make an effort first to seek to reconcile, to be peaceable, to make peace with someone. That should always be our first effort to try and communicate and bring peace to a situation rather than just put on the dukes and just start going at it and exchanging verbal blows or attacking and entering to warfare. We should always seek to pursue peace first and know, hey, I did everything I could, God. Now, ultimately, it will result in warfare. But ultimately, we should know, I made every effort first, Lord, to avoid the fight. I tried to avoid the fight. I tried to avoid the conflict by trying to make peace in the situation. He says, what do you have against me that you come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon, verse 13, answered the messengers in Jephthah, saying, here's the accusation, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok end of the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. Isn't it interesting? How ancient are border disputes? <laughs> and we think just the next guy in office is going to fix everything? We're really kidding ourselves. I mean, do you, do you see how many thousands of years old tension and border disputes are in the Middle East? Here it is right here in the days of Jephthah. You took our land. You came and claimed our land. And already there's this tension over borders and so forth and land disputes. He says, restore those lands. Give us back our lands. Well, Jephthah, he knows his history. And it's good to know your history. And he knows the word of God 
which helps him give an adequate answer in this situation instead of foolishly just giving over land that wasn't their land. He knew the truth of what God's word said and what God's history was. Jephthah sent messengers back to the king of Ammon and said to him, hold on a minute here. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab. We didn't steal that land, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, the border of the promised land. And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please, let us pass through your land peaceably. The idea is we just, we just want to pass through. We won't take anything. We just want passage through your territory. Please let us pass through. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel just remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And then Israel, verse 19, here's one of the keys, sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So he gathered all his people together and encamped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. Again, he instigated conflict against Israel. Israel didn't attack them. And he's saying, listen, this land you're talking about here, this wasn't the land of the Ammonites, which is who they were. This was the land of the Amorites. He's saying, you got your spelling wrong in history, man. We didn't take the land of the Ammonites. We took the land of the Amorites because that's who had it first, he said. And the only reason he's going to say we took the land is because they attacked us when we were trying to be peaceful as a people and we, in defense, militarily, defeated them and therefore we conquered and took their territory. And this was just the result of legitimate warfare, he says. They attacked us and fought against us. Verse 21, and the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. They took possession of all the territory, again, notice, of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and all the wilderness to the Jordan. Verse 23, he now begins to kind of jest a little bit sarcastically. And now the Lord God of Israel, that's who he says, has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? He's saying, God gave us the land. Take up your beef with God, he's saying. God's the one that delivered it to us. Will you not possess, he says, sarcastically, whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. So he says, listen, if you're angry because our God gave us land, talk to your God, Chemosh. If he can claim some land for you, take all the land your God can claim. But he's saying, our God gave us this land. And he says, so don't be angry with us. This was the land that God chose to give us. Your issue is not with us. Your issue ultimately, he's saying, is with Yahweh God. And he says, don't be upset just because your God, Chemosh, is apparently unable to give you land as our God was able to give us land. And he says, the Lord, our God, took possession of the land and therefore we possessed it as his servants because he gave it to us. And now are you, verse 25, any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he 
get upset and fight against them while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Arar and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years? Why did you not, he says, recover within that time? Therefore, I've not sinned against you, but you have wronged me, he says, by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So again, it pays to know your history. And it pays to, again, know your Bible because how does Jephthah know these things? Because they're all recorded in Scripture. And because he was familiar with the Word of God, he was able to articulate properly and give an explanation and a defense in this situation. And rather than be deceived by those who are trying to say, hey, that land belongs to you, it doesn't belong to us, he says, pardon me. You're conveying what you're conveying and you're trying to convince me that I'm the one wrong. But he says, here's what I know. The one true judge can be the one to judge between you and I he says I haven't wronged you you've wronged me what you're doing is wrong and I know that on the authority of what the word of God says and because he knew the record of scripture he was able to discern between what was right and wrong and he wasn't manipulated and deceived by a lying voice that was trying to reason with him otherwise and this is why it's good to know our Bibles because the enemy is a father of lies and he will use situations to try and convince people to succumb to pressures and things that are said and very convincingly give us our land back and it's interesting to me so well does he understand what the word of God said in its record of the history of what happened with Israel and, and what took place he even challenges them there in verse 26 saying while we dwell in Heshbon and its villages he says, in all the cities along the banks of Yarnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover it within that time? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, hold on a minute. If you're so right, and he says, this has been the reality for 300 years. How come you're just bringing it up now? <laughs> this happened 300 years ago, he's saying. Are you kidding me? He's, I mean, how would is our nation historically? Could you imagine if all of a sudden the native Indians tried to just come back? and say, oh, pardon me, uh, we, we change our minds, we want this land now. And he's saying, well, this has been this way for 300 years. Where was your beef 300 years? The whole 300 years, you never said anything. But now all of a sudden, they were trying to use pressure and manipulation to see what, if they could get him to cave, if they could get him to give in. But because he knew the truth, he was able to stand his ground and to rebuke them rather than be manipulated and to be deceived in the process. So verse 28 says, However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent to him. So again, they didn't want to hear the truth regardless. So conflict ultimately came about, but it didn't come about because Jephthah didn't try to avert the conflict. He tried to avert it. He tried to reason with the word of God. He tried to speak the truth. He tried to dialogue and use peaceful diplomacy but again, it tells us there in Romans chapter 12, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Do you understand what that conveys? Sometimes, no matter how hard you try to still be peaceable, it takes two people to make peace. It takes two people. What the Bible is saying is you make sure you've made every effort on your end to be peaceable. That you know in your heart, I, God, I have tried to do everything I can to try and make peace in this situation and do what's peaceable. But you ultimately, you can't control what somebody else does. 
And, and, and this is just a, a reality. And so the scripture says, don't be guilted beyond that point, but know in your conscience that you've made every effort to try and avert the situation. Well, chapter 11, verse 29, we'll have to just close up here, I think. I think it's a better place to stop rather than get into this bizarre vow of Jephthah, which is something I don't want to rush through. It's somewhat confusing. But notice verse 29, the spirit of the Lord at this point came upon Jephthah and he passed through the land of Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So he now heads out into the conflict. Battle is going to have to take place now. But he advances forward. But how does he advance forward? In his own strength? No. He advances forward in the strength and the power of the Lord. Does he advance forward by his own reasoning, by his own timing? No. He advances forward. It says he makes forward progress after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Again, a picture of the, the baptism, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit upon a person's life for empowerment, for enablement. Again, the Bible tells us not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And Jephthah, just like other individuals in the Old Testament, when they entered into the fullness of their ministry and engaged the usefulness and the purpose of their life to serve God and fulfill God's will for their life, it did not happen in their own reasoning. It did not happen in their own talents and their own skills. It was something that was done in the enablement and the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, that is when he then advances forward. And again, let me just give to all of us an encouragement. Before we step forward into something, before we advance forward into service, into some way of wanting to be useful for God, do you know what the most important thing is first? Is before you go, wait. Because Jesus said, for us to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But then he also told them this, but wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Interesting. Spiritual contradiction again. Go, wait. What? Go. The command is to go. I want you to go. I want you to serve and be useful. But he says, before you go, don't go in your own strength. Wait until you've been strengthened, until you've been empowered. Wait until you've been endued with power from on high because then you advance forward in the power of the Lord and in great victory and effectiveness. And let's stand. Let's pray together. Next week, we'll read ahead and perhaps you can get more insight and understanding than I can. This interesting vow of Jephthah.